9. We're going to read in verses 46 through 62. Luke 9, 46 through 62. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning to hear it preached, as we read it together, we reflect upon what it is that you call us to do, how it is that you call us to respond. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and understanding to understand your word, and you would soften our hearts to receive it, that you would so work in us that we would see and treasure Christ above all else in our lives we would see and recognize that He indeed is Lord of all and able to command us in any way that He chooses, that we would gratefully count it a privilege to follow Him as He calls us. So, Lord, may, may You make us to be true disciples as we hear Your Word and receive it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By nature, we're self-centered. By nature, we think everything revolves around us. We can do this individually, and we can do this corporately. What we need is something like the Copernican Revolution on an individual scale. What was the Copernican Revolution? Well, around the same time as the Reformation in Europe, scientists in Europe were also engaged in studies that led them to conclude that the Earth was not the center of the solar system or the universe. It was a paradigm-shifting moment in history, in the history of science, 
when they began to show through math and through other scientific observations that indeed the Earth orbits around the Sun. To realize that the Earth was not, in fact, the center of it all changed everything, scientific uh, inquiry. In the same way, when we begin to see and realize and live with a right understanding of ourselves in relation to Christ, it is naturally a major shift to the paradigm with which we view reality. From the moment we wake up in the morning, it's our natural disposition to think first of ourselves and our needs individually. It's not my first thought to wonder, what is it that my wife and my children need to get them going this day? It's my first thought, what do I want? And usually the answer is coffee. We tend to think as self-centered people. We need to go through that same kind of paradigm-shifting moment. That's what this text will do for us this morning as it causes us, as it encourages us, as it calls us to shift the paradigm through which we view reality so that we recognize that we are not the center of it all, but rather Jesus Christ, His purposes and His mission, this is the center of all reality. He is the center of reality. We need to see ourselves rightly in light of this. The disciples were having trouble. As we come to our text and we see what's going on in this passage, we see that the disciples were having trouble understanding how this applied in their lives. And you can see it right from the very beginning. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. When you can, from one perspective, understand what might be going through their minds. Reflect on where we've been in Luke's gospel up to this point. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus had just taken away that inner three from the twelve, Peter and James and John, and he had taken them to the Mount of Transfiguration where he was gloriously transfigured before them. It would be natural for these three to think in their minds, we are the inner three, we are the special few. And the rest of the twelve would be thinking, at least we're part of the twelve, and maybe there's a chance that one of us can gain that position that we don't yet enjoy. They're thinking in terms of internal rivalry. They're thinking in terms of competitiveness with one another. And so they begin to argue amongst themselves as to which of them is the greatest. But Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. And I want to focus for a moment on these two words, an argument and the reasoning of their hearts. You see, in our translation, it's necessary to render these two words differently. But they both translate the same word in the Greek text. They both translate a word that can refer to internal reasoning or the way in which we reason with one another. And the context helps us to see that in the first case, what the disciples are doing is arguing amongst themselves. And the second case, what they're doing is reasoning internally, that they have internal thoughts that Jesus himself perceives. But the reason why I want you to know that those two words are, in fact, the same word in the original text is because it's a key word throughout Luke's gospel where he connects a theme from one end of the gospel to another. Look back with me to Luke chapter 2. Turn back to Luke chapter 2 and let me remind you in Luke 2, verse 34 and 35 in this context, Jesus as a baby is brought to Jerusalem to be circumcised by his parents. And a man named Simeon is filled with the Holy Spirit and he takes up the child in his arms and he speaks these words 
to Mary, to Jesus' mother. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's the same idea there in Luke 2, 34 and 35, the thoughts of hearts, that one of the things that Jesus will do, for which he's appointed in his ministry, is to reveal the internal thoughts of men. And we can look back even further, and we can see in the Magnificat how Mary said that the Lord is one who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and he exalts those of humble estate. And in that great Magnificat, she says that he scatters the thoughts of the proud, there in verse 51. He scattered the thoughts of the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The same idea. You have this theme that is then established in Mary's words and in Simeon's words that the Christ would be one who reveals the thoughts of men. And as he does so, God would pursue his purpose, something that he's done and will do again, of destroying those who are proud, those who are conceited, those who are full of themselves in the thoughts of their hearts. From that point in Luke's gospel, we've seen several instances where Jesus goes about discerning the thoughts or where Luke, as the narrator, reveals to us the thoughts of people's hearts. In a couple of occasions, they're good and faithful thoughts. For example, in verse 15 of chapter 3, after people had been baptized by John the Baptist, we read, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning, it's the same word, questioning, thinking in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. These are good thoughts. They are thoughts of faith. Of course, John was not the Christ, but they were thinking along the right lines. They were looking in expectation for the Christ's coming. But most often, when we see the thoughts of men's hearts revealed, they're thoughts of unbelief. They're thoughts of pride. Let me give you simply one example in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus gave strength to a paralyzed man's legs. Before he did this, we can see there in verse 20 of chapter 5, when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, that's the same word, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. That's not the last example, nor was it the first, but it is a good representative example of what often happens in Luke's gospel when Jesus comes and discerns the thoughts of a man's heart. He shows that their thoughts are hypocritical, that their thoughts are unbelieving, that their thoughts are not properly responsive to the revelation that they are receiving from Almighty God through the person of Christ. And so, as we reflect on what's going on here at the outset of this passage, we see that Jesus' disciples are acting very much like those scribes and Pharisees. This puts them in a dangerous situation as they argue amongst themselves about their own personal greatness. And as they reason in their hearts about whether one of them will be greater in the kingdom than another, they are in danger of going the path of all who are proud, of being among those people 
whose thoughts the Lord scatters, those people who the Lord brings down. He exalts the humble, but he lays low the proud. We can see that all and all throughout Scripture, that same theme, that same principle. The disciples are in danger of becoming like the Pharisees. But Jesus is gracious and he is patient and he will instruct them so that he can reorient their perspective, so that he can turn the paradigm through which they view the world away from themselves toward Christ, toward God's purposes, and to the part that they properly play within it. So knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Jesus took a child and put him by his side. Now, why would Jesus take a child in this moment? Why would he use a child as an object lesson? James Edwards, in his commentary, writes, We are mistaken if we imagine that Greek and Jewish societies extol the virtues of childhood, as is generally true in modern Western society. Societies with high infant mortality rates and high demand for human labor are not sentimental about infants and youth. Until children could contribute to the labor force, they simply had not arrived in that society, children were not valued. Children were not looked upon as, as, uh, as, uh, as people who were considered useful and valuable, and, and, and uh, they were the least of these. But Jesus is not one who is controlled by his culture. Jesus had an entirely different value system. And he uses this child in this moment as an object lesson to show his disciples the value system of the kingdom into which he's called them. So they will realize that the problem is not who is the greatest among them. The problem is the very conversation that they're having. They still have not gotten what he has been teaching them. But if for a moment they had reflected on all that he had shown them to this point, even on just a few of the words that Jesus had taught them throughout this gospel, they might have reasoned differently. The thoughts of their heart might have been quite different. For example, look back to Luke chapter 7. Look back to Luke chapter 7. And in this context, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And here, as he speaks about John the Baptist, he also speaks about the nature of true greatness within the kingdom. In verse 28 of Luke chapter 7, he said to the crowds, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. You see there what true greatness entails. True greatness is about one's citizenship in the kingdom of God. The least in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is greater than the greatest who was ever born of women. That is, on the human scale, John is the greatest who ever lived, and yet that human scale in its entirety stands below the scale of the kingdom of God. The least in Christ's kingdom is greater than John. But notice, Jesus doesn't put people in the kingdom in relation to one another. It's not about which person in the kingdom is greater than which other person in the kingdom. It's about whether you're in the kingdom or not. That's the thing that matters. Being in the kingdom implies that we ought to embrace the value system of the kingdom. 
Look at how Jesus responds back in Luke chapter 9 to his disciples then as he takes this child. He said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And you have two things that are going on there as he reframes the way that they think about personal greatness. First, it was obvious in their confession that Jesus is the Christ that they recognize that he is the one who is greatest of all. And it was obvious that in recognizing that he himself was sent by God, they recognize that his greatness came from the fact that he himself is God's anointed Christ. He came as the one who perfectly represents God to man. God, of course, is the creator of all things. There's none greater than God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. So of all human beings, there is none greater than Christ, for He is the very Son of God. But look at the way Jesus uh, instructs them then on that basis with those assumptions. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. If a random person tonight came and knocked on your door and said, I'd like to stay in, a, in your guest room, I'd like you to feed me a meal, you'd probably scratch your head and look at this person oddly and give him directions to a local hotel or a homeless shelter. It would be a strange thing for that person to do. But if that person standing on your doorstep is someone whom you recognized as a great businessman, maybe someone who's worth billions of dollars, or someone you recognize as a famous athlete, maybe someone who's, a, who's, who's the best athlete on your favorite team, or even perhaps the King of England or some other royal figure, some high-ranking dignitary, you might sing a different tune. You might start making the bed, washing the linens, fire up the stove, and prepare it, pre- begin to prepare a meal for this person. Because you would count it an honor to serve someone who was honored in our society. Well, that would be a natural way to respond In the same way, when someone who is honored in our society sends an appropriate representative, we receive that representative as if that person is the person he represents. When our government sends diplomats overseas to another country, those diplomats are treated as if they represent the entire country. And if they're honored or they're dishonored, the whole country takes it as either an honor or a slight. That's the way that we think, and it's not that different from the way that they thought in first century Israel. But here Jesus is saying, you want to know who my emissaries are? You want to know who represents me? You want to know the diplomats who come to you, who you ought to receive? Look to the very least in our society. In that case, it was a child. But that child represents anyone who is the least and the last of these. And he says, you receive that child in my name. You're receiving me. If you're receiving me, you're receiving the one who sent me. The day of his return, when Jesus stands in judgment, he has told us he will say this very thing, that he will welcome many into the joy of his kingdom. He will tell them that they served him when he was in need. And they will say, when did we do this? He will say, when you did it, as surely as you did it to the least, of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That is the principle that should guide the way in which we 
we, uh, guide the shape of our values, that should shape our values in this life, in the kingdom, in this present reality of following Christ as one of his disciples. And it naturally turns our gaze away from ourselves to others. And so it flows into another principle. As we receive the least and the last, as we look towards the needs of others, and not just those people who receive honors in our society, but those people who are dishonored, those people who are disrespected, we also are engaged in ourselves in, in a race to the bottom, if you will. It is we are recognizing that just as our Lord humbled himself by becoming a man, and just as becoming a man, he humbled himself by becoming a servant, by taking the form of a servant, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. And even there, he did not stop humbling himself, but he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for our sake. So too, he calls us to the same kind of life where we humble ourselves. And if we ever come to the question where we ask, have I not humbled myself enough? Have I not served enough? Have I not become low enough? We look and say, there's the standard. It's the Lord of all creation. The one who was and is and will ever be. The one who made you and he humbled himself to death on a cross. Have you reached that bar yet? And the answer will always be no. And so we can always say, I can go yet lower. I can become less still. And Jesus says, the one who is least among you all, he is the one who is great. Not greater, not great with reference to the other disciples. Great unqualified. He is great. And that's it. And so we put aside rivalry. We don't think in terms of who is greater than who, but rather we think in terms of that binary choice one who is great or one who is not, because he is a part of the kingdom, because he has followed Christ as a disciple through faith in him. That's the kind of value system of the kingdom that we are encouraged to adopt. That's the paradigm through which we are to view all greatness in relation to Christ and in relation to his kingdom. It's the first problem that we see in this text, which Jesus solves in this way. The second problem arises in verse 49. We don't know how much time might have elapsed between this, but Luke presents these two things in quick succession. And in verse 49, we see that John answers and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The thing that you should note is that in the first problem, we had a matter of internal rivalry. In this case, we have a matter of external rivalry. We have competitiveness that manage, manifests itself with respect to people who are not part of the company of the twelve, who are not part of the disciples. Now, when I was in high school and I was studying chemistry, I learned a helpful method for solving problems. Here's a problem that faces John, and the way that he solves it is by hindering this man from doing what he's doing. And the method that I learned was simple. You write at the top of the page those things which you know. And then right below that, you write those things which you don't know. Those are the things that you're trying to discover. And then you write under that principles that you've learned, the scientific principles that would guide you in your problem solving. If we can transfer that methodology to the problem that is before us, and that was before John, we can do the same thing. What does John know? He knows that here's a man who's not part of their company, and yet he is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. 
If we expand the vision uh, of John to a larger context, to recent events, we can say some other things that he must know. He knows that he and the other 11 disciples failed to do this very thing very recently. When he and James and Peter came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, what did they find? But the nine disciples trying to cast out a demon from a boy and finding that they were unable to do it. Here is a man who is doing it and in Jesus' name. Moreover, we see at the very beginning of chapter 9 that the only reason why any of the apostles were able to do this kind of work in the first place before they found that they failed. The only reason they were able to do it in the first place was because Jesus gave them authority to do it. So what's the thing that he doesn't know? How should he respond to this man who is doing this mighty work? Because he knows another thing. He's not one of our group. He's not following with us. And yet he has this principle as well that should guide him in his reasoning that when one works in this way, in the Gospels, in the name of Christ, he is doing a work by the Spirit of God. He's not doing a work in his own strength. He's not doing it apart from the purposes of God. And if God is doing the work, then is it not a right work? And what is John doing if he is standing in the way of a work that God is doing? He has not reasoned rightly. He may think in saying to Jesus, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. He may think that he's going to receive approval from Jesus, but he does not. Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. See, the crucial reality is that for John, this is about him and the other 11 disciples. He's not following with us, but look over to Luke chapter 11 in verse 23 and see how Jesus will speak at a later moment in this gospel. He will say in Luke 11:23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And look at the key difference. In the first case, he says, the one who's not against you is for you. But in the second case, he says, the one who's not with me is against me. And we say, why the difference? And the answer is in the pronouns. Us versus me. The crucial question is, is the person following Christ? Not, is he following me? Not, is he part of my company? Not, is he with me or my group? But is that person rightly following Christ? Is God rightly working through him? We can apply this in our own lives by considering some historical examples. And here I follow two articles by Michael Haken. I've given you links in the bulletin for your own reading. This is about the history of Reformed Baptist churches in England in the 17th and 18th centuries. And if you know anything about the 17th century, you know that this was a time of great religious revival in England and the American colonies. In the 1700s, God poured out His Spirit in a mighty way through the ministries of men like George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley, and through the ministry of Jonathan Edwards here in the American colonies as well. And many, many thousands of people came to know Christ in a saving way. In the century prior, in the 17th century, that's the 1600s, one of the most spiritually alive denominations, Haken writes, in the British Isles were the particular or Calvinistic Baptists. From the establi- their establishment in 1638, the establishment of their first congregation in London, they grew to the point where by 1660 they were some 150 congregations 
Could you imagine? Less than 30 years, one church multiplied to 150. Haken goes on. By 1689, there may well have been as many as 300 across the British archipelago. archipelago. 300 congregations in less than 100 years. And yet, in the, in the 18th century, during that time of the, what, what historians call the Great Awakening, the particular Baptist churches were declining. And not only were they declining, but as they looked at what God was doing in churches other than their own, many turned their noses up at it and denied that it could possibly be a work of the Holy Spirit. Haken writes this in a second article. Many particular Baptists had deep reservations about the revival. The Wesleys, of course, were Arminians and thus beyond the pale for the Calvinistic particular Baptists. However, Whitfield was a Calvinist. Yet the fervency of his evangelism and his urging of the lost to embrace Christ, their only hope of salvation, prompted a number of Baptist critics to complain of what they termed his Arminian accent. Most important, if you don't know what those theological terms are, don't worry about it. Most importantly, the particular Baptists were disturbed by the fact that the earliest leaders in the revival belonged to the Church of England. Their particular Baptist forebears, after all, had come out of the Church of England at great personal cost and suffering. And they had suffered for their determination to establish true gospel churches. The heritage that came down to the 18th century particular Baptists was thus intertwined with a great concern for proper New Testament church order. I share that concern. I hope you share that concern. I think in that concern, they were right. But in their response to what God was doing, they were wrong. John Gill, the leading particular Baptist divine, for much of that century, Haken goes on, well expressed the ecclesiological convictions that prevailed in the particular Baptist community. For much of the era, the Church of England, he declared in no uncertain terms, has neither the form nor matter of a true church, nor is the word of God purely preached in it. And so they passed resolutions against these churches and this movement. And they said things like, it is unlawful for any to attend the meetings of the Methodists or to join in any worship which is contrary to the doctrines and ordinances of our Lord Jesus. Many 18th century particular Baptists were thus adamant in their refusal to regard the evangelical revival as a genuine work of God. For from their perspective, it simply did not issue in true gospel churches. I've given those articles to you to see the whole story. How in the next century, in the 19th century, God did bring revival to and through those same Baptist congregations. But for a whole generation of Baptists in the 18th century, they declined to partake in the work of God, one of the greatest works of God in all of history. He poured out His Spirit in such a mighty way that still we read about it. And still Christian leaders yearn for the day that God might do that again in our nation and in our world. And they said, no, we won't participate. We don't believe it's God's word. Why? Because it's not happening in our churches. They came to conclude that just because they had deep and real and right convictions about the nature of a true church, they concluded, therefore, that God could not work apart from them. They could look back to history and value people like John Calvin and Martin Luther for their theological contributions, but the people who were their followers in their present day, they looked at with scorn. It's one of the saddest chapters in the history of Baptist churches, and yet it's a very common problem not just for them but in our own day. 
It's not wrong to have doctrinal convictions. It's not wrong to gather with people who are like-minded in many ways. But if God should do a mighty work here in Coloma, for instance, and the majority of that work should be done, for, in, for example, in the church across the street, this Lutheran church there, how would we respond? Would we stomp our feet and grit our teeth and say it's not a real work of God because it's not happening here? Or would we rejoice even as we pray that God would grant them greater light from Scripture, as we understand it, that God, through His Spirit, has chosen to bring many into the kingdom. What's going on in the passage here in Luke 9? If those of, our, of those Baptists in England had reflected more on this text, they might have thought differently. John thinks that God's work and God's mission is all about him and his group, and he can't see that it's bigger than him. You can't see that there are things that God is doing that John himself is not a part of. True, the apostles would be hugely important for what God would do, as we'll read about it in the book of Acts. They were foundational, along with the prophets, to what God has built in his church. But they were not all of it, and they certainly were not the cornerstone. That's Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And that's why Jesus rebuked him and said, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And we should think the same way when we see people who may differ with us on matters that we prize, matters that are very important, and yet join with us in exalting the same Christ in the same way and holding forth the same gospel by which men and women can be saved. That should rejoice our hearts and we should pray that God would work mightily through whomever he chooses to work. We should rejoice when it is our privilege to simply see it. Now there's a major turning point then in this text, in verse 51. It's a major turning point in the gospel. We see that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's a way by which Luke indicates his definite resolve to do what he's predicted again and again, saying that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and scribes and be crucified, and after three days he must rise. That's got to happen in Jerusalem, and Jesus sets his face with resoluteness to go there. This is a major turning point in this gospel. And it's another way in which Luke shows that the cross was not an accident in the plan of God. It was the plan of God from all creation that His Christ, the very Son of God, should go to a cross to die for us. But in this particular narrative, we see that Jesus also sends messengers ahead of Him. There's a lot of emphasis on His face. He set His face to go to Jerusalem, and a literal rendering could be, and He sent messengers ahead of His face who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And as we see that the Samaritans don't receive him, we understand that the reason they don't receive him is because the Samaritans are at odds with the Jews. They have a number of disputes. One of them is about the proper place of worship. Is it in Jerusalem at the temple or is it on Mount Gerizim there in Samaria? And they've had this dispute for many, many years. And so Jews did not count Samaritans as truly Jewish, as true Israelites. And Samaritans regarded the Jewish people as not worshiping God rightly. And they had this dispute. And so as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and they perceive it, they refuse to receive him. So what does he do? 
Well, John and James once again open their mouths and stick their feet in their mouths. Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? They have a timetable. It's not Jesus' timetable. They have a sense of urgency. It's not the same sense of urgency that Jesus himself has. They're probably thinking about Elijah and how fire came down and consumed the sacrifice on Mount Carmel and then how later he called down fire to consume the captains and their 50 men who came to arrest him and came to kill him, sent by the wicked King Ahaziah. They're thinking, we can call down that same judgment, can we not? Let us do that now. But they're not really thinking properly. They're not reasoning the way that we reasoned earlier. They're not thinking about what they really know, and they're certainly not applying the principles that they've learned from Jesus to deal with this unknown situation, with this difficult challenge, whereby Jesus has not been received by these people. If they had been thinking only about what Jesus had recently said, all the way back when he told them that they must take up their cross and follow him, they would remember that in verse 26, he said, for whoever, in chapter 8, verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And this way and in many other ways, Jesus showed that judgment belongs to him and he will dispense judgment when the time is right, when he comes in glory. But that time is not now. It's not now for us and it wasn't now for John wasn't now for James either. They wanted to call down fire. And they should have been thinking, what if our Lord treated us like that? What if he treated us with that same sense of urgency with which we treat the Samaritans? God had a bigger purpose that they could not understand. The Samaritans would ultimately turn to Christ in large numbers. And you see that in the book of Acts. In fact, John, along with Peter, was sent by the apostles to go witness it and to confirm it and to be the instrument, the means by which God poured not fire upon the Samaritans but poured out His Spirit upon them. And you can see that in Acts chapter 8. But John can't see that now because his vision is so clouded because he cannot see past himself. Nor can James. They're focused and fixed upon their own greatness, upon their own sense of urgency, upon their own timetable. They don't realize that Jesus has bigger plans for these Samaritans. If they had, they would have done what Jesus led them to do after he rebuked them. Simply go on to another village. They would have judged that situation with the patience that it demanded, not by seeking to take judgment into their own hands. What about us? What about you, friend? Some of you may be here who are not quite sure whether or not you're in Christ. You're not quite sure whether or not you want to follow Him. And you're wondering, is this life of discipleship for me? I want to encourage you to reflect on what Jesus demonstrated of His loving character in this passage toward the Samaritans. His great and perfect patience. And I want to encourage you to reflect on your disposition toward God. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 11, we read these words. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That is, Gentiles called the uncircumcision by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And you hear those words of hostility and you hear those words of separation and you see what God accomplished through Christ on the cross was bringing peace where there was hostility. First and foremost, peace between us and God and also peace with one another where there was hostility and division. He made that possible through the cross. He made that possible because he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. The solution that the Samaritans needed was not fire sent from heaven, but a Savior who was willing to set his face to go to Jerusalem, even if it caused them to reject him in the moment. Because he went to atone for their sins. He went to atone for our sins. He went to atone for the sins of James and John. And he's patient with us. And he gives us ample opportunity to receive with repentance and faith that peace that he offers to us through Christ and through his cross. But don't mistake his patience for apathy. He is long-suffering, but we never know when he will say our time is up. So now is the time to believe. Now is the time to return to him in faith. Now is the time to trust in Christ who gave his life for you so that you might be healed. Because God did not pour down fire from heaven on them or on us. He poured down his wrath on his son for us so that we might be saved. And there is great urgency to this, even if it's not the same urgency that we see in James and John. We see it in what, how the passage closes. As many would-be disciples come to Jesus, he indicates that urgency in various ways. There's a man who says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And we hear those words, wherever he goes. Jesus tells this man, there are a lot of places he doesn't have to go. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The man must think in that moment, have I really counted the cost? Do I, am I really willing follow him wherever he goes. And to another, he says, follow me. But this man says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their dead. Using that first instance figuratively, as though the spiritually dead, let them bury their dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We hear echoes of the way in which Elisha came and joined with Elijah as his follower. But the main point here in all of these things is we step back and we say, all of those things seem like reasonable requests. It seems reasonable to expect to have a place to lay your head in the evening. It seems reasonable to think if your father has died that you should take leave to go and bury him and deal with the funeral arrangements. It seems reasonable to say, let me simply say farewell to my family 
And it is reasonable, and that's the point. Jesus is showing the superlative greatness of His own claim upon our lives. He is Lord of all. He doesn't necessarily say to everyone, don't bury your father, but He said to this man, leave the dead to bury their dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And He has that right. The urgency is right because He is the one who determines the timetable. He is Lord of all. That is, He is the one who executes the timetable that is fixed in the Father's authority. So, if He says something like this that seems so unreasonable, if it comes from any other person, it would be unreasonable. But coming from Him, it can never be unreasonable. Because He, indeed, is Lord of all. And that includes us. So if He calls us to give up all our property, to have nowhere to lay our heads, if He calls us to give up our relationships with our family, with those who are dead or those who are alive, if He calls us to give up our vocational commitments, it's not too much for our Lord to call us to do because He indeed is Lord of all. And in all of these ways, what He simply does for us as He teaches us the way of a disciple the way of the kingdom, is he shifts the paradigm with which we view all of reality so that our vision is not obstructed by our egos. Our heads are not so big that we cannot see reality. But we see that we are small, this world is big, and God is bigger than it all. And he's doing a work that he has begun in Christ that he purposed from the foundation of the world. We it is our privilege that we should partake in that work. But it is not our right, and the work is not about us alone. We must recognize that at the end of the day, it's about Him and Him alone. And that is for our good. Because this is not just about one who demands our worship. It's about one who came and gave His life for us so that we might be able to worship Him rightly. So, let us orient our lives and our vision and our whole reason to be around the one who is the Christ, the Son of God, His chosen servant, who came to give His life a ransom for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that You would impart these words to our hearts and our minds, that You would work in us so that we would not be a people who are weighed down by pride and ego, people who risk coming under your condemnation because our pride is so great. But we would be a humble people, a people who humbly repent of our sin, humbly embrace Christ by faith, and humbly join with the work that He is doing, that you are doing, and rejoice in the work that you do through others as well. May we go forth from this place such a people who know the peace that we have through Christ and rejoice in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.